This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Whether it's the latest Jordans, the classic Nike Killshot sneakers, or your standard run-of-the-mill vans, sneaker culture continues to dominate urban culture. But how much are those classic Air Force Ones worth? Are you overpaying for those limited-run LeBrons? It is about balancing the needs and the wants of buyers and sellers. We are working on catering to both sides of the market, being data-driven, changing the dynamic in the space rather than letting brands determine how something should be priced or when something should be available or be out of stock. We're really flipping that paradigm and allowing the market to determine how much is something worth and really leveling the playing field. StockX is attempting to walk that line between being a safe haven for buyers looking for a fair deal and an online marketplace for collectors trying to unload their merchandise. Dina Bari is the CMO of StockX, and on this episode of Marketing Trends, she discusses the work StockX is doing to be a valued online merchant. And she dives into the dynamics of appealing to a sneaker audience and so much more. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and today we are joined by special guest, Dina, how are you? Hello, how are you? Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Um, super excited to get into all things StockX today. You know, one of the uh, you know fast-growing and amazing companies out there uh, and a lot of really cool things happening on the platform and a lot of cool marketing things. So we'll get into all of that and, uh, and your background. So first, how'd you get started in marketing? So a long, long time ago, I started my career in finance, actually, and in, in investment banking. And, you know, sometimes you have to learn what you don't like to discover what you do like. And that was sort of my experience. You know, I spent those four years in banking, kind of slaving away in the stereotypical way and realized that I wasn't using my whole brain in the way that I wanted to. Um, so I was a career switcher. I went off to business school to get out of finance and into marketing. And so left business school, started um, in a general management rotational program at Reebok and got very lucky. There was on my second stop on the rotational, I was in marketing. There was an opportunity that that opened up for a full-time role as the director of women's marketing. And I raised my hand and somebody for some reason decided I was the right candidate. So I got off the rotational train, jumped into a marketing job and never looked back. So flash forward to today, tell us about being CMO of StockX. Well, um, there's a lot of hop that happened in between then and now, but um, you know, in some ways, this job brought me full circle back to that first marketing job where you know, it's marketing to consumers, building a brand for consumers, which I love to do. It's running a marketplace, which is very dynamic um, with both buyers and sellers on the platform. This job is a lot about learning, really serving the customer and really understanding what makes the customer tick. I think that is one of the most interesting parts of, of marketing uh, is really digging into the dynamics that drive your customer, uh, figuring out how you as a business can uniquely serve um, and meet those needs. 
And then there's a lot of, you know, obviously creativity because we're in a space that sort of lives and breathes creativity and um, sort of the zeitgeist, what we call current culture, what's happening right now, what our customers value right now, what they want to stand for, how they want to see themselves and be seen. And that requires keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world, coming up with new and different ways to tell stories, building relationships with the creators uh, and the influencers that are leading that consumer. And then, of course, there's the data side of the job, right? So growing a business, especially an online business, means that you have to be pretty well-steeped in technology, in data and analytics, and be very rigorous about measuring, testing, measuring, incrementing, and repeating. And so, um, you know, hearkening back to that insight, the reason I left the banking world is that this really makes me use my whole brain, the creative and the analytical. And so for listeners who don't know, can you share a little bit more about StockX and kind of where you're at as a company? For sure. So StockX is a leading global marketplace for the resale and retail of current culture products. So today that is largely sneakers, streetwear, gaming, accessories, collectibles, trading cards, handbags, um, watches, things like that. Sneakers and streetwear really are the heart and soul of the catalog today. But we are constantly evolving and changing to adapt to, again, that consumer trend and passion point. Um, and as the two-sided marketplace, you know, it, it is about balancing the needs and the wants of buyers and sellers. So, you know, we are working on catering to both sides of the market, being data-driven, really changing the dynamic in the space. So rather than being um, top-down and letting brands determine how something should be priced or when something should um, be available or be out of stock. We're really flipping that paradigm and allowing the market to determine um, how much is something worth, you know, how long something should be available in the world um, and really sort of leveling the playing field in that way. Um, we're a global business. So we started here in the U.S. in Detroit, but have since expanded. We're selling in over um, in almost 200 countries today and really have a lot of emphasis on growing internationally. We see Asia, Europe, um, Australia, Canada, some of the most exciting growth markets in our future. And we really believe that um, as a brand standing in the middle between these buyers and sellers, we have a responsibility to deliver authenticity into that equation. So we actually take uh, possession of every product that's sold um, and authenticate it, ensuring that it is indeed the product that um, the buyer expects to be receiving. So it removes the risk in the, in the transaction and ensures that standards are being met. Yeah. It's such a, such an interesting, you know, differentiation there. I know uh, uh, I have a few friends who, who sell on StockX all the time. I see it on, uh, you know, on Twitter or wherever on social media, uh, I see, feel like I see StockX all the time. That was the first way I was introduced to the to the company. Um, was seeing those things, and there's some level of kind of like virality that happens. It seems with you know with a company like yours, where there's so many, you know, so many of the things that are on your platform are like inherently viral, right? Shoe releases and things like this that are you know bespoke or unique or you know limited release or things like that, and it seems like you know, being a place that helps to facilitate those allows this like spread of word of mouth that's that's super unique. For sure. I mean, one of the things that's exciting about sort of trading and current culture items and products is that your consumers of those products 
care a lot about what it mean, what they mean, right? Like they're making that choice because again, it, it's those products stand for something that really matter to them. And that means they want to talk about it. They want to showcase it. It is part of their identity in a way that is really special. Now, there is the segment of consumers or customers on our platform that are basically small businesses, um, and they are driven by different things, right? And in that case, it's all about economic opportunity, which is another really great thing. You know, on the one hand, with the consumer, average consumers engaging, it's about self-expression and identity and participating in current culture. And then on the other hand, with these people who are in it for, you know, the op- business opportunities, it's all about facilitating that and creating economic opportunity, which is especially exciting in this time when there's so much uncertainty out there. And we're hearing these great stories from our sellers who are able to, you know, generate stable income for their families um, on our platform. So there are really two different sides of it. Yeah, totally. So how involved are you in in those different pieces? Because I'd imagine as CMO, you have, uh, you know, as you talked about a little bit earlier, you know, your hands in a lot of different pieces of this, mm-hmm. but it seems like, you know, StockX is such a marketing driven company in a way, um, but not necessarily in a traditional way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so there are so many things that drive StockX. We're marketing driven, we're brand driven, we're product driven, we're ops driven. It's funny how you know, complex actually the operation is and you really need all of those parts to work well. Um, but I'm biased. I do think we're marketing driven and brand driven. The, the consumers are the lifeblood of our success, right? We um, are increasingly becoming disciplined about being customer focused. And what that means is developing a really robust customer listening and customer insights practice. Um, learning how to develop a more sophisticated customer experience management practice. And it starts there. So that's one role that my team plays is helping just keep that ear to the ground, helping to represent the customer, um, seeking the insights when it's not obvious, and then translating that back to the rest of the organization, whether it's uh, customer service or operations, making sure that all the partners who impact the experience hear the things that we're hearing through this insights practice. Another thing that we're doing to lead is really, um, obviously, we're putting content, messaging, creative out there and storytelling. And that is a great way to engage and re-engage the community. I think, um, you know, and sometimes that community that we engage through those channels goes beyond the customer base, right? Because it's an easier, sort of lighter touch, lighter way, uh, touch way to engage with the brand. Um, so journeys sometimes start there. And that's a big part of what our team does is just tell interesting stories. You know, one example um, with our PR team is we just published this great data-driven story around um, the momentum of the business and some of the most interesting trends we're seeing. So that's one form of storytelling. Another form of storytelling may be collaborating with an up-and-coming creator to release limited edition products on our platform. And then there's just the straight up you know, let's um, make a video or um, write a blog post about something that's going on right now that our customers are thinking about or want to know about. So um, that's something else that we're doing to be out in front. Um, And then of course, there's the growth engine. So uh, the quantitative side of the team, which is continually looking to broaden awareness, bring customer, nurture customers through their journey, uh, their conversion journey, and then ultimately retain them through great CRM. So, you know, whether it's the kind of top of funnel um, through acquisition, the mid funnel um, as we're driving that, that sale or kind of downstream as we're engaging the customer through their life cycle, constantly working on, um, on keeping the customers um, excited and ready to, to buy or bid now. So 
you know, many moons ago, we had uh, Brian Rothenberg on the show, who is kind of an expert at, at marketplace marketing, and it is notoriously complex. Um, perhaps one of the most complex things that uh, that any marketer can do, because there's, you know, if you think it's hard enough to talk to one customer, try talking to uh, to multiple different sides of it. How do you look at the different sides of the marketplace um, and, uh, and marketing to those different populations? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, even if you stay on one side, there's complexity because there are different segments, right? Take the sell side, for example. You have your casual sellers who are just in it for the fun. And then you have your power sellers who are those small to mid-sized businesses, right? And um, we need different ways of talking to and engaging those different profiles. For that group, there's a totally different toolkit approach and um, tone than what we bring to the buy side, which is where you get to be, I think, more immersed in that like hype space, that more kind of creative, culturally relevant space. Um, and there too, there are differences, right? There's the power buyer, again, often um, a small business buying um, in high volume to resell. And then you have your more average consumer. And then within that, there are tiers of engagement, meaning some people who are like sneakerheads and they need a different pair of shoes for every day of the week. And then there's people who are just casually buying. And that latter segment is growing for us, right? As we expand from um, an early adopter type company early in our life cycle to becoming more well-known and expanding the group of customers that we touch, of course, we're diversifying the customer base and engaging more people who are perhaps... Um, you know, later to adopt or less avid sneakerheads, um, and we have to have different tools for them too. So whether it's educating them about sneakers and streetwear, or educating them about how um, a live bid ask marketplace works, or um, just helping them understand trends, so there definitely is this need to diversify the toolkit as we diversify our user base. Um, and the way that we solve for that is, again, back to the customer insights comment, you know, we spend a lot of time understanding those segments. So, um, you know, doing segmentation, really bringing those different segments to life for everybody in the company so that we all have a pretty tangible understanding of those differences. And then just thinking about designing solutions specifically for those targets um, and those different segments, which can come to life in different forms. Like for the power sellers and buyers, for example, we know that what's most important is um, product and having great tools to sell at high volume and high velocity or to buy at high volume and high velocity. And that's really about putting a great, powerful tool in their hands more so than it is about like great marketing that captures their heart. Yeah. And, and I want to talk like sneakers specifically in a little bit here. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I, I kind of want to talk broadly about this idea of authenticity. Clearly, it's one of the hallmarks of, of StockX. And it's something that is like a huge differentiator from like other places where you can buy stuff. Yeah, um, There's all sorts of places in this world to buy stuff online now. And, uh, we, you know, a great example of this is, uh, you know, you would have thought that it was easy to buy toilet paper, but, you know, six months ago, that was not the case, right? And, and there's all sorts of like people creating faulty Amazon accounts and selling, you know, fake toilet paper and stuff like that. It's something so simple. So when you talk about a $1,000 pair of sneakers or something like that, 
authenticity is key um, and trust is key. And we always talk about trust as, you know, one of the hallmarks of being a marketer is you have to build trust. But I'm curious, like, how do you market authenticity? How do you differentiate that? And how do you market trust? Yeah. So this is so important for our business and for this space, you know, in resale, I think it is one of the riskiest elements. Um, You know, you're buying something on the secondary market and you don't, and historically, you know, before StockX, if you think about the places where you could do this, um, at least online, you know, don't really know who's on the other side of the transaction, don't really know if the photos are an accurate representation of what um, is being sold, don't know if the thing that you click on is the same thing that's going to arrive at your doorstep. And the recourse was not clear either, right? If it goes wrong, what do you do? So, you know, when StockX arrived, one of the key really elements of the model was um, this invention of authentication, right? Put someone in the middle of that transaction, anonymize the relationship between the buyer and the seller and check and absolutely verify that the, the item on your doorstep is the item that was represented. You are buying the thing that is has been photographed by us and there's a single PDP for any, you know, there might be hundreds or thousands of sellers for a single product, they're all being represented by that one PDP. So this idea is really at the center of our model. Um, and I think it's one of the, was one of the unlocks that, that de-risked the transactions and just allowed people to move really quickly um, and trust us as much as they trust at this point, primary resale, you know, we're seeing, especially during this, um, during this pandemic, excuse me, it's primary retail, um, during the pandemic, when retail in many cases was shut down and those stores were not available, you know, the place that the Foot Lockers um, and the Nike stores were not open for business, buyers were coming to us instead. And I think that really says a lot about how far this um, authentication step has gone to establish us as a trustworthy, reliable source. It's something we're constantly working on every day. Our authenticators um, are highly trained. We're always up-leveling the onboarding and training for that audience, especially as we diversify the catalog because authenticating a shoe is different than authenticating um, a luxury handbag, for example. Um, So there are different skills required. And because we see this as a key part of our value proposition, we're constantly investing in how to maintain and increase quality. You know, historically, the way we would market this is through using, you know, we have this sort of mark for um, always uh, verified. It goes on every product that's gone through authentication. It was sort of the seal of approval, if you will. And it was part of our core value prop, but we weren't doing much more to market it. We're actually changing that because we see it so much, so critical as a differentiator. And, you know, the people who are in the authentication centers, they're really like the heart and soul of the business. You know, it's like, Without them, the engine wouldn't work. And we want to humanize that because even though it is this very rigorous process, it's also, um, you know, a team of people who love their jobs. They love the products that we're authenticating and and selling and trading. And they bring an incredible amount of wealth of knowledge about these products. I mean, some of these people have been like in love with the category since they were eight years old. And, you know, I mean, the stories that they have to tell about how much they love the products we sell and why they came to authenticate. It's really just awesome. So we're working on bringing some of that to the foreground because I think it helps humanize um, the whole process and the brand and helps people understand that behind, behind the scenes, you know, there's a person who's looking at every nook and cranny of your product to ensure that it's what you expect it to be. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things, obviously, like 
we've seen a lot of like direct to consumer companies focus on is like having that seamless experience, making sure that if you're getting high quality products that you're going to have like, you know, the, the Yetis of the world to like spend a ton. If you're selling premium products, like you have to have a premium experience. Now for you, a lot of the you know, premium part of the product is already done for you, but the facilitation of ensuring that it's premium needs to be, uh, needs to be, you know, marketed, told, retold, uh, and make sure that people understand that StockX is the best place to go. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, part of growing so fast and introducing yourself to new audiences, whether that's, you know, new markets, um, or just new segments, it means that you have to sort of retell your story again and again. And, you know, get better at it, get better at telling it faster, more effectively. Um, it, it has to change in some ways. Like when we, right now, as we're broadening our, our audience and going after some consumers that are just not as well educated coming in about the products, you know, we have to talk to them um, about the things that they need to understand for them to get excited about StockX. So while there's a lot of repetition and sort of like replaying the soundtrack, you still have to adapt and learn as you go um, so that you're always relevant and always um, sort of being as effective as you want to be with the newer audiences. So within that, you know, when you have like the discrepancy of the person who says like, hey, I, I sent it and it was perfect. And then there's that sort of thing. How do you deal with those friction points? Yeah, it's so frustrating for us. There is, you know, there there's always that um, those anecdotes about a person who disagrees with our authentication decision. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to explain like, hey, we didn't pass this product because there was a manufacturing defect. So we're not blaming you seller for trying to pass faulty product, but actually there's a manufacturing defect in this product um, that makes it not authenticable. Um, you know, and so it's one of those, one of those topics that sometimes you just don't see eye to eye with the part with the other party. And the way that we handle that is to, you know, greet every disagreement with empathy. I think first and foremost, that's something that we're really trying to infuse through a whole brand voice. It's just empathy um, and humanness, as I was referencing earlier. I think secondly, to be transparent and be really as share as much context as we can about the why, right? If you're being told no, you want to know as much detail as possible. And so we're really trying to, you know, transparency is one of our key tenets as a brand. And so trying to pass that on in every interaction, even if it's contentious. And, you know, we have policies in place um, to handle these, these situations that go sideways. A lot of them are designed to, um, you know, encourage our sort of most adherent, most, uh, you know, most loyal buyers and sellers. But we do also know that like mistakes happen, right? Like sometimes things go wrong. And so we try to make our policies while very clear um, and firm also to make exceptions when it, it is the right thing to do. So again, putting the customer at the center of, of every interaction, really trying to be empathetic, transparent, and honor the policies. But sometimes you just have to make the exception. So where's the sneaker industry at right now? It seems like it's like never been hotter. Um, and obviously <laughs> you have brands like, you know, Jordan and Nike and and obviously um, having like Yeezys around and all this stuff. It just seems like there's just so much, um, there's just so much like going on uh, and you see it all the time now. It's just, it's something that, I, I mean, it, it seems so, so fresh and new. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um 
sneaker culture has officially become one of the more um, influential drivers of mainstream culture. Um, There's a report from Piper Sandler um, that was published this spring that said over 40% of Gen Z consider themselves sneaker heads. And StockX is the number four most popular website amongst that audience. So that tells you something about how uh, prominent sneaker culture has become especially with the Gen Z really, you know, coveted and influential Gen Z shopper. We think that this sneaker resale is a $30 billion opportunity globally um, by 2030. So to your point here, um, growing, continuing to be exciting. And we are really excited about some of the trends we're seeing amongst our user base. So it's not just Gen Z, you know, we've seen over the last six months, you know, an outsized growth in the 45 and over segment which speaks to, I think, not just the kind of cresting of sneaker culture, but also um, the shift of spend from offline to online. Uh, We've seen a growth, again, outsized growth in women's sneakers, um, which I think is another trend that we've been watching in this space over the last year, where it went from a sort of unisex, like men's product worn by women world to, um, you know, product designed for sometimes created by women collaborators and now being purchased um, faster and faster by women. So there are a lot of really interesting trends that show us that sneaker culture and the products that sort of surround that are on the minds of a lot of very important shoppers and um, it's here to stay and it's growing. And this is, again, a global trend that we're seeing, um, which I think bodes well for us. Well, you know, it it reminds me of... uh of like you compare this to like the car industry where you're like, there was a time where everybody wanted, you know, the patent leather Jordans or or whatever. And then eventually, you know, time went on and like nobody really had them anymore. And the people who did have them, you know, would would wear them with like plastic bags (laughs) as they walked Mm -hmm. out the door, things like that. And then it kind of just seems like this evolution of like, hey, we should just do retro re-releases all the time for all of our, you know, top selling shoes and then, you know, do them as uh, as limited releases and things like that. I'm not like an expert at all on any of this stuff, but just following the trend. And you compare that to like the car industry where it's like there's all these super, you know, old, really cool looking cars that they've never remade, even though if you remade those cars to look like virtually the exact same, just with like new technology on the inside, they would probably sell like crazy. It just seems like the sneaker industry saw the trend um, and has tons of, uh, you know, influencers with like a lot of the basketball players and uh, and musicians and things like that that are behind it. Plus, you have these massive marketing budgets from Nike and Jordan and, and others that are promoting these constantly. It kind of just seems like it's the perfect storm Plus, like, you know, younger generations are not going to wear like penny loafers. You know what I mean? Well, for sure. Yes. There's so many trends. Like, you know, I think in general, um, in fashion, the trend away from more formal apparel to uh, in the women's space, we call it athleisure. But in general, the fact that everything's sort of converging to this, like you have one wardrobe, right? It's the wardrobe you wear to the office. It's the same thing you might wear on the weekends. You don't have the loafers and the suit for the weekdays and then something totally different. Um, for the weekend. So that's, I think, very real. I think um, the other thing is that um, this idea of sort of the archives, right? You have the collection of silhouettes um, from from the big brands and the idea of anniversarying those silhouettes. And often you can make it feel very new by changing the colorway, collaborating with the creator, 
you know, changing some of the details and suddenly there's a whole breath of fresh air around this very recognizable classic silhouette. So that is a play from the playbook that um, the brands use brilliantly um, to to get a lot of mileage out of silhouettes that might be, uh, have been around for a long time. And to also to create this, this sort of pent up demand, right? These shock drops where something comes out of the blue, it's released unexpectedly in a limited amount and there's a frenzy around it. That is like a brilliant marketing tactic that Nike invented 25 years ago, right? Where it was like limited edition um, releases of product that creates the heat. And then that sort of trickles down to more mass demand through a differentiated um, distribution channel for products that are a variation on that theme. I mean, that is uh, one of the, the classic marketing moves, I think, that Nike invented that many industries and brands have learned from. You know, the drop is is now something that goes way beyond sneakers. You see it in makeup, you see it in apparel um, from like the fast fashion world. So it's really, I, I think that tactic has had a ton of influence. I think in the sneaker space, it continues to be super effective. And the other thing I think that's happening right now with some of the macro events is that there is this sort of desire for classical, um, classic goods, you know, this idea of like, putting your your purchasing power towards things of enduring value rather than flash in the pan type of product. I think that is sort of in a potentially recessionary environment. That is something that consumers think about. And then of course, there's the last dance effect. This documentary has had an amazing amount of influence over um, consumer behavior. And this was engineered in part by Nike. Again, another brilliant, a brilliant place. So um, lots of things coming together to help encourage the success of of these drops. And luckily, we were able to participate in that. Well, and I think that one of the things that um, from my friends who who resell uh, on StockX is it's something I never thought of is that like certain sizes are in like really high demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are just like the, the, the things that if you didn't work at you know, a shoe manufacturer, you would never know these sort of things that like there's certain cultures that have, you know, different foot sizes and all these sort of things that come up that are extremely important to this whole like ecosystem that allow there to be businesses built on your platform of people that are like, you know, supporting their lives. And and ultimately, like it allows people to find and, you know, take action on things way easier and quicker than they ever could have if, you know, if you were just searching around the internet, right? Looking at garage sales, that sort of idea. Um, it's a much, much more sophisticated process. And I think having a place to go for this, as you mentioned, you know, at the top, it's like it allows multiple different entrants into the market at the same time, which is like the hobbyists or the, uh, you know, the professionals or, you know, the uh, casual buyers, and it's all kind of in one place, and it, it makes sense, and you can see it, and you trust the thing that you're getting. Um, yeah. I think without, I mean, I think that's the clear, you know, opportunity for StockX, obviously, but it's like it's kind of all there in one place, rather this kind of like disparate ecosystem. Yeah, I think you know one of the most powerful elements of our business is the bid ask element, where like the market is tell us whether a size 13 should cost more, right? And that's based on supply and demand, the basic economic principle. And it works, right? If there is a lot of demand for that size 13 and there are only a small handful of pairs out there in the marketplace, you will be paying a premium. And 
the other thing I think that's so great is that whether you are the hype beast who wants, you know, the newest, you know, the chunky donkey Ben and Jerry's collaboration with the SB Dunk that came out that was selling for like a few thousand dollars or whether you're a suburban mom who just wants a general release Air Force One in white, you can find that. You can find both and you can find it at your price and you've both scored. Like you've both gotten what you wanted, even though you're on totally different sides of the spectrum in terms of trend risk profile and with the product, you know, so what is current culture for one person and coveted and needs to be bid on today by one person could look totally different for the next person and both can find it on StockX. Have there been any channels uh, that have worked particularly well for you all on uh, on customer acquisition? And you know, I know obviously the the pandemic changed everything, um, but I'm curious, like, how did that shift during the pandemic? You know, we have some pretty interesting dynamics as it relates to um, to customer acquisition, and one of them is that historically users have been very query driven. So because of this drop um, phenomenon that we were just talking about you know, people are looking for that next release, right? Show me Jordan 1 Mocha that's dropping on Halloween. And people are looking with that specific phrase. And so what that means is that there are huge opportunities in search, both paid and organic, um, and really any search-driven channel. Those channels are historically some of our best performing channels. Um, At the same time, we've seen great success with streaming TV. And I think because you know, there is so much new appetite for the goods that we're selling. And um, our message for that new audience is pretty fresh and new. So I think we're seeing as we go kind of up funnel, mid funnel, we're seeing just a really strong reception to the idea of, hey, come to this marketplace where you can always find the product that's top of mind for you at the price that's right for you. And it's authentic you know, that that's a message that's well received. So we're seeing success, um, you know, kind of throughout the funnel right now, which is just great. And I think speaks to, again, like what's happening at the, at the higher level in this space. Um, we do a lot of great work too on the kind of earned and owned side. So we have an incredible in-house PR team that is constantly out there um, telling stories on behalf of the business. You know, I spoke earlier about this idea of data-driven storytelling and Um, We've started publishing these infographics in the last 12 months that really show kind of what's happening and the power of the data on the platform to uncover trends in behavior. So things like, hey, during the pandemic, you know, puzzles and face masks popped like almost 300%. So that's another channel that's really, really fruitful for us. It just, um, you know, obviously it helps get the word out there and brings a lot of new eyeballs, which we can then um, remarket to and sort of nurture And then our social channels, um, where where we do leverage influencer relationships quite a bit, um, they're also great for us. You know, we we do have a really strong in-house content um, and creative team. So we're always generating little videos, stories, photos of this product and our platform. And a lot of times that product lends itself, right? It's it's beautiful. It's colorful. You can prop out with really cool vignettes. um, So it makes for good eye candy and social media. So those channels tend to be great for us too. Yeah, I was going to ask about content. What what type of stuff are you all creating? Um, you know, we have really strong social channels and a big community on Instagram. And there, obviously, it's, you know, the short form story type videos um, or photos. Uh, a lot of times we'll elevate creators and collaborators through our channels. 
So we have a blog that we publish to regularly where there's the longer form content and some really cool stuff. Things, you know, history of heat is one of our, um, of our franchises where we talk about sort of the history of the Jordan, the history of hip hop and sneakers. So these themes, um, we have an in-house video studio where we do either, um, you know, little um, product kind of glory videos, or we'll do interviews with different influencers and personality. So it's really, is really diverse. Um, we believe in content as a really important part of the marketing engine. You know, we also believe in inviting outside voices in and, and collaborating with people who are authentic and relevant in the community and, and partnering up with them to tell stories. Yeah. What's, how do you, how do you go about thinking about like influencer marketing and partnerships and things like that? So we have a team um, dedicated to that specifically. They're called the cultural marketing team. And they're, you know, sort of as their name suggests, their job is to sort of have their finger on the pulse of current culture and to help us be well positioned to play in the in the areas that are the passion points um, that our consumer has. So, you know, identifying the different areas that matter most and then sort of analyzing the market and saying who are the most relevant partners for us. And that might be, you know, a leading voice or personality. And it's sometimes it's not the one that's out in front. Sometimes it's more of the up and comer kind of helping to, you know, elevate people who are certainly their stars already on the rise, but um, just partnering up with them and working with them to do something cool. I mean, on the other hand, you know, we just partnered with Jackson Wang. who's like one of the preeminent stars um, coming out of Asia. Um, he, launched an exclusive capsule collection of streetwear on X, which was an awesome um, campaign. So we do have a few like tentpole, more high profile partners. You've been a CMO a few times now um, at completely different types of, of organizations. Uh, you know, Birchbox, Juicero, Helix, and SockX, obviously totally different. Um, I'm just curious, any lessons from those previous experiences that you kind of take with you now? Oh yeah. I mean, yes, each, each one, um, you know, has taught me something special and, um, and though they're all, they're also different. There is a through line. I think the through line or the shared trait, really these sort of disruptive e-commerce platforms, Birchbox is where I, um, it was equal parts subscription and e-commerce. So, you know, that was, for me, a great lesson in, you know, building a marketing organization from the ground up, scaling it, as we grew from an itty bitty startup to, you know, one of the leading disruptors in the beauty space, we went from being a U.S. based company to being a global company. And so those were some of the big lessons, just kind of like cutting my teeth in the job um, and scaling the team um, and the organization and the brand. From there, I went kind of went over to more of the health and wellness side the next two companies were on the health and wellness side and both were still, you know, on that, that through line of e-commerce, but one was Juicero was super early, right? It was pre-commercial when I joined. Honestly, my lesson from that, from that venture was how important product market fit is. And no matter how cool the technology is, if you don't have really great product market fit, you can't really um, overcome that. Um, And then for Helix, I think lesson there is that sometimes you just cannot get consumers on board with a technology that is um, that they're not ready for. So the promise of personal genomics, I think it's incredibly powerful, 
I think consumers are not there yet and are not ready to sort of take their health um, into their own hands in that way um, and move away from environments that are more conventional. And we had incredible brands aligned with us, Partners National Geographic and the Mayo Clinic. So I learned a lot there about partnering um, and serving partners well in a marketplace environment. But in the end, I came back to this space of you know, marketing consumer goods to consumers, you know, still in a marketplace environment. I love the complexity and challenges of a marketplace, but I also love um, the truly emotional connection that our customers have with their products and the fact that, you know, when they look at um, something that they purchased, it means something to them. Um, it, it helps them express themselves. It helps them sort of say something about themselves, which I just, I, I love that. Okay, let's get into our lightning round here. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more about marketing on the world's number one CRM that is Salesforce. Lightning round questions. Dina, are you ready? Yes, I think so. Favorite pair of sneakers ever? <laughs> okay, I get asked this question a lot, and I have a pair of sneakers in my closet um, from... I'm going to say 2005, they're a pair of pink crackle leather Reebok freestyle highs. So this is an aerobic shoe um, that was invented in the 80s that when I worked at Reebok, we reintroduced to the market. And this pair was one of the limited editions from that relaunch. Favorite book or podcast that you've checked out recently? A favorite book or podcast that I've checked out? Well, my sister, I'm going to do a plug for my sister, who's an executive coach. And she launched a podcast this year called The Inside Job. It's about um, finding true joy in your career. And um, I feel very lucky because I love my job. Um, but even in being in a place of you know total gratitude and joy with my job, I still, every time I listen to that, I learn something. So The Inside Job. I'm sure you don't have this information, but can you remember the first thing you bought or sold online? Oh my goodness. I mean, I remember, so I have three kids and my daughter was born in 2008. She's my oldest. And I remember being, we lived in New York City and we bought a lot of baby furniture online, which was at the time really unusual. Um, so we're making like large purchases that were pretty expensive and just having them yeah. ship to our apartment building. Um, so that's, that is memorable. In fact, I still have um, a couple of those pieces of furniture in our spare bedroom. So if you weren't a CMO, if you're doing something else entirely, what do you think you'd be doing? Teaching yoga. What's your best advice for a first time CMO? You know, I think um, do not be afraid to ask for help or advice. One of the great things, um, for me now is that, um, you know, now that I'm like an old timer, um, people ask me for advice and it's just great to be able to help people sidestep, um, mistakes that I maybe made already and that someone else can learn from, you know, so I encourage people who are in the job for the first time to create a network. Honestly, I still, even though I am a seasoned CMO, I still get a lot of value out of talking to my CMO peers, um, and now a lot of the venture firms do a great job at creating these forums. And so, you know, sign up for those forums, build a network of CMO buddies that you can talk to and ask what may seem like silly questions of. But I mean, there's no other way. It's either you ask for help or you just stumble along. So um, don't be shy and get, get advice from people. What's the one question that you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? 
What are you? What shoes are you wearing right now? Yeah, what are you wearing right now? I'm wearing no shoes because I haven't left my house today at all. <laughs> I'm wearing I'm wearing slides. So. <laughs> uh, not too far off, Dina. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining. We really appreciate it. Obviously, everybody, check out StockX uh, if you haven't already. Dina, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? It was great to be here. Definitely check out StockX. Amazing place to do your holiday shopping. Shop early and often this holiday. Um, and can't wait to yeah, hear about everyone's. Point. Yeah, early and often for sure. And I can't wait to tell us about your scores. Just share um, hashtag got it on StockX so we can all know what you got. Yeah, hashtag got it on StockX. Love it. Dina, thanks so much. Thank you guys. Take care. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.